Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I just want to say that the LGBTQ history, it's a history of overcoming challenges in terms of discrimination, overcoming AIDS, and just powerful and inspiring stories of how we came together to exert political force, which was made possible by our numbers in coming out as LGBTQ people. But I don't want to like overlook the fact that we're also a really fabulous community. And the whole beauty of our community is just how diverse we are. So what brings us together is our differences in terms of gender and sexuality from the norm. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. On this episode, we head to the vibrant and historic LGBTQ enclave of San Francisco's Castro District to talk to our guest, Terry Beswick. My name is Terry Beswick, and I'm the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco. And I've been in this position for just a little over five years. We're a 33-year-old organization. We have one of the largest archives of LGBTQ historical materials anywhere in the world. And we also have a small museum in the Castro. For almost 35 years, Terry has worked as an advocate and organizer for the LGBTQ community. He was the first national coordinator of ACT Now, the National AIDS Activist Network, and a co-founder of the Castro LGBTQ Cultural District. Most recently, he was honored as a community grand marshal for the San Francisco Pride Parade and Celebration in 2020. In our conversation, Terry shares with us how he got started advocating for the LGBTQ community, how he and the GLBT Historical Society preserves and archives LGBTQ history, and his thoughts on the importance of the Castro. How did you get started in LGBTQ activism? Uh, gosh, I have to reach back for that one. Let's see. <laughs> in the mid-80s, I was actually a theater student at San Francisco State uh, University. And, um, you know, I was coming out of a heterosexual relationship. And I was helping to start a community theater in San Francisco. And the AIDS epidemic was, of course, unfolding in San Francisco just as I was kind of coming out again uh, around my sexuality as I'd been gay previously and was sort of seeing myself as bisexual, but in in a heterosexual relationship. And so that was my personal story at the time that I was walking through the Castro one day in 1985, 86, and there was a little protest going on at the Harvey Milk Plaza at Castro and Market Streets. And there was maybe, I don't know, 50 or 100 people there. And there was a a young, very handsome man standing on a soapbox with a bullhorn. And he was exhorting the crowd to show up for a protest against discrimination against people with AIDS. And I I didn't know anybody with 
AIDS at the time. As I said, I was still coming to terms with my own identity as a gay man. And I was just like, really, well, I was attracted to the guy. <laughs> and I was also really riveted by the idea of that we could take action to fight AIDS together because I was living in fear at the time. Everyone was. It was a scary, terrible time. And so I went to a meeting to help to organize a protest. And within a couple of months, I had gone and done a civil disobedience action at the federal building in San Francisco, where we were protesting mandatory testing of HIV among Job Corps applicants and Peace Corps applicants. And, you know, it sounds like an obscure issue, but that's kind of how I got my start. And from there, I became a full-time activist, focusing mostly on AIDS for over 10 years. In addition to that, you have taken on a lot of different roles and helped found several organizations. What's kept you going over the years? Well, I often feel like I'm just drawn to where the need is greatest. And that's how I want to spend my time. I, I really enjoy a, a challenge and I like to take direct action. I like to see results as quickly as possible around things. And so, Kelly, I was, as I said, I was a child of the 70s. And what that means is that we were in the middle of anti-war movement, civil rights movement, uh, women's rights movement, and just the beginnings of a lesbian and gay rights movement at the time. And I wasn't even aware of the lesbian gay rights movement. But what I was aware of was that I felt very different myself personally. I felt bullied as a child, often at home and at school and in the playground. And it's because I was an effeminate child, very sensitive. And so I mentioned that because I think that that's the roots of my motivation. So when I see a group of people, particularly a group of people that I identify with that is discriminated against, I want to take action to try to stop it. So that's really been the basis for my work in the ACT UP days in the late 1980s, and then organizing community-based uh, research and treatment access for people with AIDS. And more recently, working on trying to preserve our queer history and culture for the protection of young LGBTQ people especially. You're the executive director of the GLBT Historical Society. Tell us about the society's mission and vision. Sure. Well, we were formed in the mid-80s. It was actually around the time I became an AIDS activist. So it was right in the middle of the beginnings of the AIDS pandemic. And initially, there were some history buffs that got together and they had their own personal collections. And they decided that it was important to form this organization to collect, in particular, people's papers and memorabilia who were dying of AIDS. And so their, their memories, their lives, and their, their histories as gay people, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people were being lost, but especially gay men in San Francisco 
They would die. The prognosis was very short at times, and their belongings would get tossed. And their families didn't have any value for this stuff. They oftentimes were rejected by their families, and they saw their things as basically being trash, pornographic, or whatever, and threw it out. And so we began collecting and retrieving those. And some of our founders actually dived into dumpsters as part of our mythology to grab this stuff, which has become the core of our collections. And so we have over a thousand individual and organizational collections in our archives. Our mission is really to collect this stuff, collect it, preserve it, and share it, and make it available to researchers. So we have many researchers under normal circumstances, you know, when our archives are open to researchers. We have dozens of people coming from around the world every month to the archives to do research for everything from junior high school papers to documentaries and films and, of course, books, biographies of all kinds and works of art and plays. And so, yeah, we just service the collections, we process them, digitize them as much as possible. We also opened about 10 years ago, we opened a small museum in the Castro, which is really our location where we showcase our archives collections. And so we rotate in different collections and uh, we have about 20,000 or so folks that come from around the world normally every year to visit the art uh, museum. And now over the last year, we've really moved towards making these collections available online as well. So people can actually see a lot of our exhibits on our website and access a lot of the archival materials too. And in recent years, we've really been focusing on broadening our collections from that core, which was mostly gay men, to be more inclusive of women and bisexual transgender people. Because Kelly, you know, the LGBTQ community, I think it's worth stating, is as diverse as the general population. We come from everywhere, all kinds of families and all uh, races and ethnicities and nationalities. And, and on top of that, you pile all the full gender spectrum and the full sexuality spectrum. So we're an amazing and powerfully diverse community. And the challenge for us is trying to fully represent that. That's what my work is all about. Often preserving the culture means dealing with bureaucracy. Do you get a lot of support or pushback? And why is this work important to you personally? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Kelly. For the last uh, five years that I've been working in this job, one of my goals and one of the goals of my board of directors has been to establish a much larger museum of LGBTQ history in San Francisco, because the one that we have, it's small and mighty, but it's small. And it's a storefront museum, as you'll see across the country, small museums and small towns that you go to visit, but it's not worthy of a major international city like San Francisco. And not only that, but we don't have a full-scale museum of LGBTQ history anywhere in the United States. There's a medium-sized one in Berlin, but other than that, there's only small galleries like ours around the country, and only just maybe three total in, in the United States that are about queer history. So, so I've been focusing on getting city support for establishing a much larger museum, and I get a lot of political statements of support for it, but in terms of actual 
financial support, it has not been materializing. And so it's a real struggle. And, you know, it's hard because San Francisco is confronted with so many different kinds of challenges, as are many other major cities in the United States right now. But often history and culture kind of gets left off to the side when the budgets are being made. So, yeah, that's one of our big challenges. And I'm still hopeful that the city and other major financial supporters are going to step forward and help us to establish a larger museum in San Francisco. So we're still working very hard on that, but it's been a challenging struggle. It's interesting that you say that because the LGBTQ community, when you think about it, you think about its roots. And I immediately am drawn to the Bay area, the San Francisco area. So to hear that the support is not there is sad because that is something that the city is equally known for and praised for. And there's there are so many beautiful people who encompass this space. Why not pour into the people who have made the city a part of what it is. Yeah, and I just want to say that the LGBTQ history, it's a history of overcoming challenges in terms of discrimination, overcoming AIDS, and just powerful and inspiring stories of how we came together to exert political force, which was you know made possible by our numbers in, in coming out as LGBTQ people. But I don't want to like overlook the fact that we're also a really fabulous community. Absolutely. (laughs) And the whole beauty of our community is just how diverse we are. So what brings us together is our differences in terms of gender and, and sexuality from the norm. But other than that, we're everything, class, race, gender, as we've said before. And I don't know. I mean, it's like, I think... The culture that comes out of people that have been oppressed, either as a group or individually, it's, we know how to party, we know how to throw a big party, we know how to make a million person parade, you know? (laughs) Yes. And it's fantastic, and it's fun, and you don't have to be queer to, like, enjoy it and be a part of it. So... San Francisco is a great place for that, for people to come together and, you know, I remember like in the 70s and 80s in the Castro, it was like, we didn't actually like the tourists coming in very much. And the Castro kind of became a really gay, male, white bastion, mostly white, actually, and very insular. I remember folks actually throwing eggs at the tourist buses when they went by, because we didn't want to be gawked at. But now it's like people, first of all, We formed the gay neighborhoods because for safety and also just so that we could feel free to hold the hands of our partner, give them a kiss, or just, you know, to wear the clothes we want to wear or act how we want to act. And that's how sort of ghettos form in all kinds of communities, you know. It's just for safety and also freedom. But now that queer people are in popular culture much more... Because I remember you had to go to the castle to hold another man's hand. And now you can do it pretty much anywhere in the Bay Area or in California. But you're always conscious. Even now, you become a little bit more conscious when you're not in a safe place. After the break, I asked Terry to share more of his thoughts about the Castro and its role in LGBTQ culture. Hey, it's Kate. 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. My guest is Terry Beswick, Executive Director of the GLBT Historical Society based in San Francisco's Castro District a place that can be seen as one of the United States epicenters for LGBTQ culture. I asked Terry what he thought, as a longtime resident, about what makes the Castro so important to the culture. A place that's historical for me, if, for example, something happened for me there that I'll remember, and I mentioned earlier, you know, when I saw that cute guy at a rally at Castro and Market Street in 1986, so for me, that's the history of that corner, you know? And, you know, it's just so many thousands and thousands of people over the years have created memories and history in the Castro. It's changed a lot over the years, but we have to remember that prior to the 1970s, you know, it's mostly just like an Irish Catholic working class neighborhood. And then a couple of bars opened. And before you knew it, there was dozens and dozens of gay bars and businesses. And the streets are lined now with rainbow flags. And we have the rainbow crosswalks, all which are just like marking territory in a way. But what makes it special for me is really the people, which includes the visitors, people that come there just to celebrate and to party or to meet somebody, or to participate in a community activity. So it's the people, and they come from all over the world. So if you come to visit the Castro, it's just like an international meeting place for LGBTQ people and allies and their admirers from all over the place. And yeah, and there's some great places there too. I mean, there's a lot of fun bars. For me, it's sort of like going to the French Quarter in New Orleans, you know, the village in New York. And it has changed. A lot of people are frustrated that it's not as gay as it used to be. And there's just natural ebbs and flows around gay neighborhoods. And we see that happening all around the country as those gay enclaves become less gay, you know. I don't think the Castro is going to lose its gay card, you know, anytime permanently or completely, but we're also spreading out. We're spreading out everywhere, and we don't necessarily need to have that walled-up little village that we used to have. So what makes it special? I don't know. There's kind of a magic to it. I remember when I was a kid and I was brought up in Central California, and we started coming to San Francisco, and it was like the magic of seeing Oz. You know, in The Wizard of Oz, you just knew there was something special Part of it is just being in an urban city environment and you can have a certain level of freedom and anonymity. But again, it's the amazing diversity of people and the creativity and spontaneity, the drag, the activism, and the high ideals of the social justice movements in San Francisco too. You know, I think it really have sort of set a standard around the country. The city of San Francisco has seen some major changes over the last few decades. 
how has the changing demographics affected uh, the LGBTQ community within the Castro? You're saying it's become less gay. Explain. Yeah, well, there's a lot of discussion around that. And I think there's a multitude of factors that have gone into this. But first of all, there's socioeconomic pressures. Okay, so not only has become less gay, but it's become less diverse in some ways, I think, in terms of the people that live there. You can still walk down the street and say, oh, this is very diverse. But a lot of the people that you're seeing are visitors. And I think the reason for that is because rents are notoriously high in San Francisco and in, in the Castro in particular, it can be really high. And so for a queer kid, let's say from Idaho or whatever, who used to say, I'm going to go to San Francisco and I'll just crash on somebody's couch and find a job. You can't do that as easily as when I was a kid. You can't just go and bust tables and pay rent in San Francisco very easily. You know, you, And so what that means is that that's not the place to go. Also, you know, I mean, the height of the AIDS epidemic, we lost a lot of people who had bought homes in the Castro in San Francisco and fixed them up. Part of that was sort of gentrification too, but those homes were purchased by not necessarily people that were queer. And so so there's that. Also, the bars historically have been where queer people have found each other, whether they were in the closet or not in the 50s, 40s, 60s, 70s. You could go to a bar and be fairly anonymous in a city and find your people, you know. Mm -hmm. Now you don't need that so much. You can just go on an app. That's true. That's true. You can do that from anywhere. So anyway, putting aside the queer identity, but just generally, San Francisco has lost a lot of its people of color population since the 1980s. A lot of the black families have moved out into the suburbs. Working class families in general have. And the Latino population has diminished significantly in the mission. And a lot of people have moved into town from other cities. Often people that are well off and can afford to live there or have tech jobs or something like that. And so... We can try to preserve the culture with funding for arts and small businesses, but the socioeconomic factors are really the powerful forces at play here. The rich are becoming richer and the poor are becoming poor, and the Castro is not immune. Exactly. I was actually going to touch on that. As the demographics are changing, as you said, what do you think the Castro's role is in today's LGBTQ movement with that? Well, I'm actually really hopeful about it because one of the organizations I helped to start recently was the Castro LGBTQ Cultural District. And my friend uh, Tina Aguirre is the new district manager for the Cultural District. And the Cultural Districts were formed in San Francisco around the city. And there's three that are queer. There's one that's transgender in the Tenderloin. And there's one about leather and LGBTQ in South of Market. There's also one in Japantown, Filipino district in South of Market, and Calle 24 for the Latino district in the Mission. And so the one in the Castro and all these others are really like designed to try to preserve the culture of the racial or ethnic or gender sexual identity of that neighborhood that has formed in recent decades and to try to keep it that way. But it's also to try to manifest the kind of neighborhood we want it to be in the future. And so 
What we've done with the Castro LGBTQ cultural district is have an election of board members that is really young and diverse and amazing group of young people that are working with the city to really try to plan for the future of the neighborhood in a way that preserves its queer identity and maintains some focus on trying to create opportunities for housing, artistic expression, and new small businesses to form that are owned by queer people and with queer staffing. And so I'm like hopeful that we're gonna be able to make a difference around that. They're really like focused on looking at intersectional, if you will, looking at how we need to lift up those who have been historically most marginalized. And usually that means queer, trans, people of color, that need better opportunities for education and housing and employment. So what's exciting to me is that there's a lot of young folks that are very idealistic and focused on results in this area. And so I think it's the grand experiment continues. Before we go, what are some of your go-to spots in the Castro? Yeah, let's see. One of my favorite places in the Castro is the Castro Theater. I think they're reopening now. If they're not, they will be very soon. But, you know, it's an old movie palace. And they've got a great Wurlitzer organ that plays before every showing. And it's just one of those movie-going experiences that just makes anything that you see there really fabulous. And so that's one of my favorite places. Of course, there's our museum in the Castro on 18th Street. And I think it's a great place to sort of get some context of the history and culture of the neighborhood. As I said, one of my favorite things to do in the Castro is just to walk through the neighborhood and watch the people. And I think we have a lot of great characters that uh, come through the neighborhood every day. There's also a Castro camera, and it's closed, of course, right now, but on Castro Street, it's the place where Harvey Milk had his camera store in the 1970s and also ran his campaigns for uh, office. And, you know, Harvey Milk was one of the first uh, openly gay people elected to public office. And I think the first in California. And that's kind of a go-to historic location. There's the bars also. I don't drink, but I love to go to the bars and just experience the fun scene there. One of my favorites is actually on the corner of Castro and Market Street. It's called Twin Peaks Tavern. Mm. It's been there for many years, and it's got these big plate glass windows. And, you know, it was one of the first bars that had big plate glass windows where you could see all the gay people inside. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a wonderful place to people watch, you know, with friends. There's also some favorite restaurants. Catch is my favorite restaurant, other than Orphan Andy's. Orphan Andy's, a 24-hour diner that serves great hamburgers and fries. And it's really historic, and my friends uh, Bill and Dennis run that place. But the Catch restaurant across the street from there, it's actually a historic location itself. It's where the uh, Names Project Quilt was founded in the 1980s. But now they have a wonderful seafood restaurant there. It also has a wonderful patio on the street, so you can uh, people watch from there. But, you know, I think the main thing, Kelly, is just, like how you get there, because a lot of people come from downtown and from Fisherman's Wharf or whatever. And I think you can take a cable car from Fisherman's Wharf down to Market Street and then catch one of the historic F 
streetcars from around the world that run down Market Street to the Castro. And I think that's the only proper way to get there is on a cable car and a streetcar, which takes you right into the middle of the Castro. And then just, you don't have to have any plans. You just wander around and go all the places. It's bound to be a fun way to spend some time. That's all for this episode of Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. I'm Kelly Edwards. Our guest for this episode was Terry Beswick, Executive Director of the GLBT Historical Society in San Francisco. Follow Terry on Instagram at terry.beswick and learn more about his work at the GLBT Historical Society at glbthistory.org. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Lena Beck-Sillison, and Marvin Yu. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag. And you can find me at Kelly Set Go.